As I mentioned, we are looking to preach from verses 16 to 21, which we will read once again. And we see there that uh, Peter, in that first chapter, he's saying that he, in verse 12, that he will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of those things, those things that they know. And again in verse 13, the putting you in remembrance. And verse 15, having things in remembrance. So the repetition of instruction is necessary. It has an apostolic example. And so for those who were in the adult Bible class this morning, you might be reminded of some things as we open up the Word of God. I did not know what our brother Reverend Fitton was going to teach on and, and, uh, and vice versa. So there is... There is, by God's uh, uh, sovereign providence, uh, some overlap even there this morning. But we will read from verses 16 to 21. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, stories, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he, that is Christ, received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. As evangelical Christians, as evangelical Calvinist Christians, we believe that there was a marked difference between two characters in the Scriptures who lived at the same time. That is between King Saul and King David, as he eventually became to be. They were both members of the Old Testament church, uh, and yet one was an unbeliever and revealed that in his life and his life's choices and in his behavior, and the other was a believer. The other was a true believer. He wasn't a perfect believer, they don't exist, but he was a true believer. And David's, and I'm speaking of David then when I'm speaking of his, his belief and his faith, but his faith and his religion was not an inherited truth. He was of the tribe of Judah. His father, we can surmise, was a believer. He was, seemed to be a godly family, mostly. But his religion was not a mere inherited truth. It wasn't something, a tradition that he just received and, and carried on. It's not something that he could passively absorb from his parents or family or friends or from whomever. 
Uh, David's religion was a personally experienced religion. Personally experienced. And as we are informed in the history books of the Scriptures, and we read just a, a portion of it, the last words of David... And not only from the history books, but more so from the psalm books. And we understand from the psalm books that that at least half are certainly from David. 75 of the 150 psalms are psalms of David. And and we know that because it says so on the top, or it references something in David's life, and it's clear that he is the author. Or it's confirmed in another part of scriptures, the scriptures that David was the author of that psalm. So in the Psalms, we we know much about his experienced religious life. His experiential Christianity, we could say. David knew clearly in the Scriptures, he knew something of the conviction of sin. We see also that that conviction had work upon him. It had a fruitful work upon him because we see that he repented of his sin. Whichever sins it were, he, he would complain to God about his own sinfulness. We see also that he, he knew of the need to cast his cares upon God and to call upon God for deliverance and for help in all sorts of matters. We see also his great gratitude that he had to God for these deliverances and for the blessings that he had received. And we notice, of course, in, in authoring the Psalms, his personal and heartfelt worship to God even when nobody was around but the sheep of the fold or the rocks of the caves. When he was on his own, nobody could watch, nobody could observe. He was a worshipper of God Almighty. All of which point to the truth that David experienced his need of God. He knew of his need of God. He had a personal experience and a personal walk. So all of those aspects that we're considering, I've just mentioned with David, point to something that we call experiential Christianity. Christianity that is experienced. You may have heard another term, experimental Christianity, and that's got nothing to do with a laboratory. Experimental is just another version of the word experiential, that which is experienced. So you... What is it then? You are personally experienced the convicting work, the, the, the power of the Spirit through the Word of God, and it has an effect upon you, and it, 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 it convicts you, and it causes you to be converted to Christ. It, 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 it causes you to want to love and follow this Christ. There is a change, and it is a personal change, and an experience change. It's not merely being part of a, of, a, of a church tradition and just attending, and it has absolutely no effect upon your life. And I'm not talking about those that would bring lip service and would say it has an effect, but it's, it's clear there is no effect. And so that's what we understand. There's that personal experience with God through His Word, by His Spirit. Now, true experiential Christianity is not the same as relying upon emotions and experiences. There are many uh, groups within uh, the visible church throughout history uh, that have relied upon emotions and experiences. And such groups, you may have heard of the Quakers, of course the charismatic movement in its various phases, mystics, there were mystics throughout the church, uh, life, they, they still exist, pietists, uh, those were, that were seeking 
avidly for experience and feeling to confirm the word as opposed to the word giving them those uh, feelings. And Wesleyan Methodists, the Methodist Church, uh, together with the Quakers, have, uh, have been uh, two groups especially that have, have relied upon experience, having an experience. So it's not just the Word of God, it's the Word of God, it's church tradition and personal experience are the three foundations of Wesleyan Methodism, but not as taught in the Scriptures. And on the contrary, we have something that is more sure than personal experience. Not decrying personal experience, but it is not either the foundation of our faith, nor is it the testimony that we have faith. So personal experiences or emotions or apparent spiritual leadings are not necessary because we have, not in the sense of leading us, guiding us, because we have a more sure word of prophecy because the divine revelation that we have in the scriptures is more certain it is greater it is truer than any experience that a sinner even a saved sinner can have whether it be experienced by a believer like you and me or by one of the apostles themselves that's the example that we're having today from the apostle Peter which means therefore that personal reasoning reasoning, human logic emotional reactions any experience at all is to be tested by the Word of God and to be interpreted by the Word of God. See if they're true. See if there's something of God in this. See if the Lord has worked this way before. And besides which, the Apostle Peter, he is directing us to the Word of God, to the more sure word of prophecy. He's directing us to it beyond any personal experience. And let us be truthful, there is nothing more overwhelming than having a personal experience of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured before you with heavenly glory streaming out through his body. Even with that experience, with all its fear and its excitement and its uniqueness, Peter does not lord it over the readers of this epistle. He's not saying, I had this great experience. It's a shame you weren't there. You've only got the scriptures. No. The apostle Peter says it the other way around. He does say that he, he had this wonderful and glorious experience. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have a more sure prophetic Word, which is the title of the sermon this morning, the more sure prophetic word. We see, firstly, together as we open up this section of the scriptures in verse 16, especially, we, we hear the apostolic word, the apostolic word that comes forth to us because that's what he's speaking of. And he says, We, there's only one Peter, of course, but he's speaking, he's speaking at least of the three that were on the mount, but in general. Uh, of all the apostles, but let's be more precise, yes, those three that were witnesses. We, he says. And we see firstly uh, Peter's gospel witness as we examine something of his apostolic, apostolic word. And he says this in verse 16, essentially he says the gospel is not a religious fable. 
And there he was. He was living in a land that was ruled by pagan Romans who had a religious fable for everything. And if, and if they didn't have it, they'd borrow it from the Greeks. And if the Greeks didn't have it, they would inherit it from the Persians. But all of these fables, a story. A story about gods and demigods and heroes and things that didn't happen. But he's saying it's, it's not a fable. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. Now there we have a description in the scriptures for every false doctrine and false religious book. The Vedas, the hymn book of the Hindus. The Quran, uh, the book of the Muslims. And anything else that there might be that's been written... Here we see how the Bible describes it, a cunningly devised fable. It's been devised by men, and there's cunning in there. There's cunning, and we can say there's the cunning of men, yes, but we know it's the production of devils. Cunningly devised fables. He says this is not cunningly devised fables. And that is something that is used against the Scriptures. The people would say, well, the, the Scriptures themselves, they've, you know, they, they were, they're, they're the product of, of men... And, and, and they don't agree with each other, etc., which is not true in the slightest. Yet the Lord used men, as we see in verse 21. But they were penmen, inspired and moved, as the word is in verse 21, by the Spirit of God Himself. These are not cunningly, design, um, cunningly devised fables or stories. When we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... So this gospel that we received, we were eyewitnesses of. We, 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 they wouldn't have been eyewitnesses of the divine conception and the virgin birth. They wouldn't have seen that, but they would have known that from the mother of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, Mary. She would have been a witness to them. She was one of their number. She was also a believer. She was also a sinner saved by faith. And so we see the, the virgin birth and, and, and everything that happened around that. They, they would have known of that. We then could mean the church in general, the New Testament church. Uh, that we, when we have brought the gospel to you uh, and to a general audience that Peter is writing to, which is called the general epistle. He's not writing it to one particular church. He's writing it to believers in general. So we then, as the church, so the church has, has these people who are eyewitnesses. And, and of course, Peter himself was an eyewitness of the ministry of Christ, the power of Christ, the miracles, but also the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Christ. He was a personal witness. Peter, running to the empty tomb, being outrun by John, but being the first of the two uh, to look inside and to see the witness, the truth, the testimony of an empty grave and a risen Lord. And then shortly after, the Lord appears to Peter and to ten other disciples and whoever else was in that upper room. Peter is an eyewitness of Jesus Christ and what he has said his gospel is not a fable it is not a story he went to the cross an upside down cross for the testimony if we can trust what tradition says about his end well we know that he did have an end he even mentions it in this in the verses that we were uh, that we have read together but he knows that he's going to go 
He knows that his time is short according to what the word of God said to him. So Peter's gospel witness in that apostolic word. But secondly, we see his personal witness of the transfiguration in verses 16. The end of verse 16, he mentions it. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory. So his personal witness, not only of, of Christ's ministry and, and, and the redemptive work that Christ did, and all that work, being nailed to the cross, truly dying, as, as, as the blood and the water pours out of his side, he's absolutely dead. And the Roman soldiers could affirm that he was truly dead. If anyone knew about dead bodies, it is a soldier. But then he talks about something that happened prior to that, and is the transfiguration. And we, we saw that together as we looked at Mark 9. And Mark, of course, as we understand, is, is the pen man under the apostolic authority of Peter. That John Mark, the writer of the, of the gospel according to Mark, was under the guidance, and even as we understand from early church fathers, I believe, that he was listening to the sermons, and, and when there was a, 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 something that he would say about the, the life of Christ, that he would, he would write it down. And eventually that became the gospel according to Mark. So we see, therefore, then, that what he says, what we read, read in Mark 9 is what he's referring to here. So he's an eyewitness of Christ's life, but he's an eyewitness of the transfiguration. And it was a unique sight that he saw Jesus Christ in his glory. And as we know, that was only given to three of the disciples to see Christ, not in the fullness of his glory, but in much glory shining through the human body of Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's saying. These are not religious stories that we made up. And then he goes and, and says, we have made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We could unpack that even more, but we won't. We want to get into verse 17, because not only there were the eyewitnesses, but he was a witness to the voice of God. A witness to the voice of God. So Peter, Peter knew Christ, he heard Christ, but then he, he saw Christ in his transfigured glory, and then he heard the voice of God. He heard the voice of God, and as we looked, uh, when we looked at Mark 9, uh, how, how he and the other disciples, although were drowsy one moment, as soon as this power of God was exhibited, and then they heard the voice of God, they are full of fear. They're very awake, and they fall to the ground and trembling. Peter heard God's own voice and lived. It's very reminiscent of the, of the people of Israel at the foot of Sinai, that God speaks the Ten Commandments, and their first reaction is, is to be fearful and to remove themselves and to pray that, that Moses would speak to God and then speak to them, and that they wouldn't hear God's voice directly. The difference then, as we mentioned, between people who say they've heard God's voice and do not have this same reaction as everybody else in the Bible when they truly hear the voice of God. But he heard that God's own voice speaking. He is a witness, an apostolic witness to the voice of God. And we're not going to go into the details of what the Father said to the Son because we've looked at that already, those glorious truths where the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And one of the witnesses says, hear ye him. 
And he says, in this voice which came down from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the mount. But notice with me the modesty of Peter when he recounts this, this true historical event. There's a, there's a modesty here. He's not, he's, as I said in the introduction, he's not lording it over them. He's not saying, hey, I was one of the three, you know, one of the chosen three. Uh, the others didn't have it. The other nine, you know, I don't know what it is, but, you know, the Lord obviously saw something great in us. He's not lording it. He's not bragging. He's not boasting at all. There's a modesty as he relates this real experience. A real experience with God. But there's also a modesty because he goes on to make clear that the word of God always trumps all and every experience that he had. And before we get into that, it is just to continue that thought. Because when we rely upon experience or we elevate experience above the word of God, not only do we diminish the word... But it very quickly leaves, can lead us down a path of false doctrine, of false teaching, of false ideas, of imbalance at least, where we think experience trumps the Word of God. And it is a dangerous thing. We, we looked at some groups that have been guilty of doing that. There are still many that do that even to this day. And Christians, and Christians can have this tendency to see something, experience something, and think, well, that's God, and this is what God means. So where do you get that from in the Scriptures? How does the Scriptures ca cast light upon that? I mean, is it not for us a coincidence, but something under God's providential control? Absolutely. But, but what is it? Do you need that as a new revelation from God, or is it just something that happened? We have this desire to be something more than we are. So having witnessed Christ for three and a half years, having seen Christ's, uh, uh, some of Christ's glory when it was transfigured on the mount, having seen Christ suffering and dead on the cross and rising from the dead, having seen all this, we can include all of that in, in what he says in verse 16, in making known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were eyewitnesses of all of those things. He says, but Peter points us to something greater. And that's the great comfort to the church of God. So we see in the apostolic word, or the witness, brings us to the prophetic word. The prophetic word, of which the apostles in the New Testament were the penmen, were the human authors that God used, or those that were under the authority of the apostles. And so he speaks of this prophetic word. Even though he has spoken about the actual voice of God that's come down to those human beings, but the church itself as a repository of the Scriptures, both in the Old and the New Testament church, and we're still, uh, we're still the repository, the, the safe place, as it were, where God can keep his word. Not in the academic institutions, not in the theological departments of universities, but the church has been given the word. That's why we have this word. That's why we're, we're faithful uh, to the word that we have. 
And we want to be jealous about every word that God gives us. Every verse, every word, every text that we have, we will not have an edited Bible. Hence why we use the authorized version, the King James Version. I want every word of God. I want all the counsel of God. Not all the counsel of God and then missing eight verses at the end of Mark or part of chapter 8 of John or all those many words that are taken out that all refer to the blood of Christ. When the majority of texts that we have, the majority of Greek manuscripts that we have all speak with one accord with this translation. So we have a more sure word. We certainly have a more sure word when we can examine the prophetic word of God, the word of God's prophets, those who would speak his word. So even though he has heard the word of God, it's come to him personally, and he says, but God has supplied the church's needs. Believer, he has supplied your needs. You do not need to go back 2,000 years ago in a time machine, none of which, which doesn't exist anyway, and get, your, get yourself to that mount if you choose the right mountain, on which day of which month, and, and sort of hide behind a rock, and then yourself be a witness, you don't need to. The apostle was a personal witness, and he had it written down, or the Lord had it written down, and so we have the scriptures, we have those experiences that we can see and we can believe we have a more sure. It's more sure. It's a shame you can't say the word sure and then surer. It doesn't quite work in English. But we have a sure, a steadfast, a reliable word. No, no, it's more sure. It's more sure than, than personal experience and emotional and emotions. It is sure. That's what that word means. It means dependable. It is reliable. It is trustworthy, this Greek word. A more sure, but it's more dependable than experience. It's more reliable. It's more trustworthy than the apostle on the, amount, on the mount and his personal experience. He's saying, yeah, I had that personal experience, but I have the Scriptures. And you, brethren, have the Scriptures of God. It is sure, it is certain, it is reliable. I'm more sure. We could look at that word, and that Greek word you could even translate as most sure. As most sure. It's literally more sure, but the Greeks, in the way they did their language could use the word most sure even in that way. It is a most sure. It's more sure than anything else. So it's sure, this prophetic word of God. It is not only sure, but because it is sure, because it is certain and trustworthy and it comes from God, you are to heed it. You are to heed it. Because it has a divine pedigree. Whether you like it or not, whether you necessarily understand it, it is from God and you are to Heed it, because it is sure, because it is from God. That's what he says here. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. It's good for you. It's good for you that you would take heed of the Scriptures, that you would read them and study them and know them and apply them in your life. In all that God says to you, you do well. If it's prof it is profitable for you. When you heed what the Word of God says to you. And we could go into more of these details. But essentially there's blessing upon those that receive the Word. There is cursing upon those, even believers, that reject the Word. 
and we could go into uh, looking in, into those, or maybe we will just very briefly, the end of Hebrews. Hebrews gives writing to believers. He says in Hebrews uh, 13 and verse 17, and he speaks about those that, uh, that have no profit under the word of God that's preached. He says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Uh, submitting to the ministry, submitting to the authority of the session, submitting to the Word of God, the ministry of the Word of God that goes forth, if there's resistance against it, uh, and, and, and you're causing them to have no joy but giving them grief, it's unprofitable for you. It's unprofitable. Peter says, no, 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 give heed. You do well when you give heed to the Word of God, the ministry of the Word that goes forth. So it's a more sure word, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that we must heed, but also it's this, thirdly, we see in verse 19, is the word of God is a bright light that you need. It's a bright light. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place. And, 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 and you may know of that yourself, that you're under the preaching of the word, and the word goes forth, and there's something in the word, or the word causes you to think of a personal application or the word comes with an application and it's the, your application as it were is what the Lord would say to you at that moment in the preaching and then you feel guilty, you feel bad because it shone a bright gospel light into the darkness of your heart. I remember when we first started attending a Reformed Church in, 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 in Holland, they would, they would read out the Ten Commandments. And so we were under the Ten Commandments every, every Lord's Day morning, and it would just be a part of the service. And just sitting under the reading of the Ten Commandments, oh, I felt so guilty. The standards of the Word of God, the standards of God Himself, were being spoken out over me. And it's not as though I was, I, I was living a, an unholy life. None of it, but of course... There is much to be corrected, there is much to be challenged in the sinfulness of a believer. And I have to say, unfortunately, after a number of weeks it started wearing off because it was, it was just part of the liturgy. But I just remember that, that word coming in and, oh, I haven't, I haven't kept that as, a, as I could have done. And, oh, that, oh, Lord, how I have sinned that in the past or whatever it was. But it was a bright light that shone into my soul. And this is what the Word of God is. It is a bright light. It just shined light into a dark place, it says. What is that dark place? Well, twofold. It's the darkness that's within. Romans 7 declares that, or teaches us that Paul, the apostle himself, knew of the darkness within. In his born-again soul, and yet within his heart there was much darkness, and therefore you have that fight between the old nature and the new nature, between the sinful nature and the born-again you, and there is that constant fight and struggle, and, and that light of the Word to be received, to be embraced, and that you would actually do it is absolutely necessary for the life and the growth of every Christian. And you must receive the Word. You must obey the Word. You must come hungry and thirsty for the Word of God to enter in and take anything and everything that the Lord can give. 
and make right use of it. And don't cast away the gifts of God through his word for any reason. Because it is the bright light that your soul and heart needs. But also this, the dark place also points to the world in which the gospel is preached. There is a dark world. It is a very dark world. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place. But I think the primary understanding of what he means here is really the human heart. As people come in under the preaching, or the preaching is, 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 reaches their ears in any place, then it has an effect because it works faith. This is what the Word of God does it works faith. You know, the disciples that had faith prayed to the Lord and said, Increase our faith. Increase our faith. And how would their faith be increased? By the means of grace by the word of God, the word that they would hear, preached, and taught, read out, even discussed, because it works faith, this, this more sure word of prophecy. See what he says, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, the light of the gospel entering into your soul and turning you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, of which light you are given in your very soul. So we've seen the apostolic word and the prophetic word. And to add to this, the inspired word, we see in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, if we consider the inspired word, firstly, the forbidden private interpretation. And knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, as you try to understand what that text means, that particular verse means, there are two ways of understanding it, and they do not contradict each other, and so maybe we can understand them both at the same time. Is this, that, that, that a biblical text that we have, no prophecy of the Scripture, that refers to all the Scripture, no prophetic word in the Scripture, is to be given any personal unbiblical interpretation. It's a very, uh, very uh, simple understanding of the words that we have here. There are those that would take that word interpretation and, uh, and would say, well, this word is not just interpretation, but it's the idea, it is not of private production. The word of God was not produced by men who just devised cunningly, cunning fables. that it wasn't just men, religious men with religious stories. It is not of personal production. Now, having consulted Calvin, Calvin comes back to the first point and says this. I'll just read a little quote from Calvin. And he says, this explanation, you know, uh, that, uh, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. It's not to, for a, a person just to interpret it any way that they want. He says, the, this explanation contains a true, godly, and useful doctrine. But then only are the prophecies read profitably when we renounce the mind and feelings of the flesh and submit to the teaching of the Spirit. But that it is an impious, that is an evil profana profanation of it, when we arrogantly rely on our own wisdom, deeming that sufficient to enable us to understand it. 
Though the mysteries contain things which are hidden to our flesh and sublime, that is, deep uh, treasures of life far surpassing our own capacities. And this is what we have said, that the light which shines in it comes to the humble alone. It's very true. So we see the humbleness of, of Peter and, and added to this is how we receive the word, that it would do us any good, but we are not going to be arrogant in our interpretation of it. Now there are many church groups that do, do this, and even, even, even churches and congregations uh, can do this and say, for example, the Roman Catholic Church would take verse 20 uh, and, and say this, it is not for the layperson, it's not for the congregation to try to interpret the word of God. You have to leave that to the priest, and if the priest's unsure, to the bishop, and then to the cardinal, and then to the pope himself. And so they would say, you cannot read the, oh, you can read the Bible, but you can't understand it. You can't interpret it. You can't understand it without the help of a Romish priest. But there are other churches that would do that as well. I know personally of a, of a church that sent a letter to, uh, to a, a man who was going out of membership and essentially they said, we are the ones and only us, we have the truth. Do not rely upon your own reading of the scriptures. You need us to help you interpret the scriptures. And this is a Reformed church doing the same game as the Romish church. So the forbidden private interpretation is this, is that we are not to interpret Scripture without Scripture. We are not to take a verse out of its context and out of its scriptural context. Because of this, the revelation of the Spirit, which is what he moves on in, 20, in verse 21. Because he says, not only is there no to be, and we will open this up a little bit more, that not only is there to be no private interpretation, there is to be no private revelation. There is no, because there was no private revelation, you cannot trust yourself for your own private interpretation. The author of the scriptures, therefore, as I've just pointed to, is also the interpreter of the scriptures. It is not the case that somebody would come to the, some modern art painting and then the artist who had no clue what he was doing and, and he's listening to all these people with their various interpretations. I think the artist meant this and the artist meant that and the artist thinking, I have no idea what I meant. I just remember the check I got for it. It has no meaning and so people give it a meaning. But that's not the scriptures of God. The more sure word of prophecy, it's so sure that where we're not sure about a particular word, that we can look elsewhere in the scriptures and use the light of clearer texts to shine upon more difficult texts. Or we can go to our pastor, or we can go to a commentary, or we can look to try to understand what the scripture says about the scriptures. Because the scriptures are the work of the Holy Ghost. And the, word, and the Holy Ghost, as we read here, he moved, he moved these men. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. It's not fiction. It's not the co composition of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. When we think of the word to speak, then we're thinking about literal interpretation of the word prophecy. Prophecy, it means to, to speak forth. And the context is the word of God. 
but as a prophet of God. So these holy men set apart, set apart for this work, moved by the Holy Ghost, and they spoke the prophecy. This prophecy was written down, and that's what we have. So there's to be no private interpretation, that is, no personal, unbiblical understanding of a text. Not taking it out of its context or of the scriptural context. And anywhere we do not understand it, we go to the, as it were, we go to the scriptures themselves to understand what the author of the scriptures reveals to us about that text or about that doctrine, that we would understand it within its own context. Thirdly, that gives us the safety of the scriptures. The foundation that has no cracks in it. The rock upon which we can stand which is not a crumbling rock, but a solid, solid rock of granite. Because the scriptures are not only God-breathed, they are God-authored, they are God-interpreted. When we are obedient to what the Word of God says, we're not left to be victims to any other authority. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, we are to be good Bereans, we are to listen to the preaching, we're to receive it, and we're to go and see and understand, is, is that exactly what the Lord said? Or uh, what does the Lord say besides that? Or that question that came up in my head that wasn't answered in the sermon or the application, is that a good application? And we'd be good Bereans and we see what the, the word of the Lord says to, to refresh our minds to what was preached, to, to, to add for personal um, edification or application. We're not left to be the victims of any other authority. I can only speak from the Scriptures and bind your consciences with clear commandments of the Lord. I may be able to give a, a, a suggestion. Have you, this, this is an idea. This, this could be an understanding of this text. Uh, this is how we might apply it. But where the Lord says, apply it in this way, then with all the authority of the Word of God, I can bind your conscience and say, this is what the Lord would have you do. And if you don't do it, you're sinning against God. Which is very different from a suggestion. No, we are not left to be victims of any other authority. Anyone. Anyone on earth. Anyone who's died. We're not left. We are to be subjects of the King of glory and the King of truth. And His word, His royal decrees to us. And that's why we can absolutely rely upon this more sure word of prophecy. We can rely upon the scriptures and we may safely ignore anyone that contradicts the scriptures or would desire to add to the scriptures or has ideas that they would give you in replacement of the scriptures. Whoever they are, whoever they are, Isaiah says that to us. Slightly different context. But he gives us this truth to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. We could go to Micah 3, verses 5 to 7, but we won't for the sake of time. Because we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have a most reliable and faithful word of God given to us from heaven through human penmen. And we can rely upon it absolutely for truth, for salvation, and for knowledge of, of how we're to know the Lord, how we're to walk with the Lord, how we are to walk with each other, that we have the Scriptures, and whatever the Scriptures tell us to do, we are to do it. 
as the firm foundation of our faith. Is the foundation of Christ and his word insufficient? Must you add to it? We'll know that the word says that whenever you add to the word of God or you take away from the word of God, that the Lord is not best pleased. The curse of God rests upon those that despise the word of God by adding or taking away from it. But the blessing of God rests richly upon all those that receive the word of God. For how else are we to actually walk with the Savior? How can we say that we love the Lord Jesus and yet we rebel against that commandment and that commandment and we ignore that, we don't want that? How is that actually walking with the Lord? It isn't you're backslidden or you're unsaved. But to walk with the Lord means you walk in his word. And you say, Lord Jesus, thou art my saviour, thou art my king, and therefore thy word is law to my soul. If you love me, keep my commandments, the Lord Jesus Christ said. Thank God he has not left us uh, to be to be subject to a man's experience or a woman's emotion or, or anything. But he has given us a more sure word of prophecy. And let us love the word of God. Let us know the word of God. Let us live the word of God. Especially if we say that the living word of God is our saviour. May God bless his word to you. Amen. Let's briefly pray before we sing. Lord, we do thank thee for thy mercies to us. We thank thee for this more sure word of prophecy, that we do not have to rely upon anyone except in thy word where it is revealed that thou hast given many gifts to thy church, Lord, even evangelists and preachers and the like. Lord, and we do thank thee for the apostles also given as a gift and their writings and the production of, of, the, of the work of the Holy Ghost as he moved them. We thank thee, Lord, for speaking to us, though we were not on the mount, and yet we have the word of God before us, and thou speakest to us, and it is a more sure word of prophecy. We can read what we have here, and we can look back to the Church of the Reformation, they had the same word. We can go back another thousand years, and they had the same word. And we can go back uh, to the very beginning of the New Testament church and see, yes, they had the same 39 books of the Old Testament. Whilst thou didst reveal thy word through the apostles until the canon of Scripture was complete. O Lord, thou hast given us 66 perfect books. 66, uh, shall we say, levels of that foundation of the word of Christ. We thank thee for it. Cause us to stand firmly upon it, to resolutely refuse to add to it or take away from it but humbly submit ourselves to the word of King Jesus. And Lord, we pray for grace to be granted to us, that that word would have that great effect within us, that it would build us up and sanctify us, and that Christ would be glorified. For we pray in his name, Father. Amen. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn 247. Hymn 247, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let us stand to sing these six verses, please.
of our God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.